0: This morning's message comes from the first epistle to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to the middle of verse 33. And the title for the message this morning is Corporate Worship Must Reflect the God We Worship. Corporate worship must reflect the God we worship. The word of God says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn. And all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we uh, seek to understand your word, we pray that uh, through your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that uh, you would enable us to rightly understand your word. Father, we pray that you would guide my my speech and my choice of words, that I would be faithful to the texts. I pray that you would strike from the minds anything that I might say that is contrary to biblical truth. In the end, Lord God, uh, we pray that you would take your word, apply it to our lives, apply it to our church, so that we might bring you great glory and honor in all that we do and say, and in particular in how we worship on the Lord's day. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As one uh, reads through the Bible, we are given the distinct impression that God is a God of order. The Bible itself is set up in a very orderly fashion, right? It begins with creation. How does it all begin? And then how did sin and corruption and misery enter into the world? And what did God do about that? I mean, and then it ends with the new creation and God reestablishing everything, God undoing what man has ruined. The Bible is laid out in a very uh, orderly fashion. As you read through uh, the giving of the law and how the temple and the priesthood is all to be established, you're given the distinct impression that God is a God of order. He likes things done a certain way. Unlike the gods of Greek and Roman Mythology that the church in Corinth would have been very familiar with, right? If you're familiar with reading some of that when you were in school, you know that the gods of Greek and Roman mytho- mythology were very fickle. They were contradictory. They were vindictive. I mean, it was, it was a soap opera in heaven. Right? People, gods sleeping with different gods and tricking different gods into doing different things. And, and of course, poor humans on earth were just the pawns and uh, never knew what tomorrow would bring because they had no idea if they had offended one God over against maybe another God and what we could do to appease them. Yet the God of the Bible creates the world in six orderly days that logically follow one upon the next. When God gives Moses instructions in building the temple and establishing the Aaronic priesthood, he's very specific on how the temple is to be built. Nothing is left to creativity, even in terms of what should be embroidered upon the curtains as you enter into the Holy of Holies or what kind of decorations should be on the Ark of the Covenant. Everything is, God is very specific on how the temple is to be built, what it's to look like, everything down to the color. He's very specific about the the wardrobe that the priest is to wear. God is very specific about how the sacrifices are to be offered, how they're to be presented. Even the grain offering, he's very specific about what kind of ingredients you add to the grain offering and how much you add to the grain offering and how many times you waive the grain offering. God is very clear when you read through the books of Exodus and Leviticus that he desires to be worshipped and approached in a very specific way. Yet, for some reason, many think that today in the New Testament era, God just doesn't care. Right? We, we can do whatever we want in worship, he simply does not care because we don't see that level of detail in the New Testament. There's no chapter we can go to in the New Testament, unfortunately, that gives us an, a liturgy that tells us what happens first and second and, and how many songs we should sing and, and how, 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 how many times we should repeat the chorus at the end of the service and when we should do the Lord's Supper at the beginning of the service or at the end of the service. There's no chapter we can go to on New Testament liturgy, unfortunately. And so this has led many to think that God apparently doesn't care how we worship him in the New Testament. However, it's more likely that God thinks that he should not have to repeat himself. He's already made that clear in the Old Testament. And God is, according to Hebrews 13, 8, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He doesn't change. He should not have to repeat himself. If God was concerned in the Old Testament about how he is to be worshipped, then he's concerned in the New Testament about how he is to be worshipped. If God in the Old Testament did not want his people to add or subtract anything to how he prescribed worship, why would he change his mind in the New Testament? Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And then he says in verse 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. That's what God says in the Old Testament about how the Israelites are to worship him. I have told you exactly how to worship me, God says. You shall not add to it. Don't try to borrow from what other religions are doing. Let's try to snazzy up what God has commanded us to do in Exodus and Leviticus. And then he says, you shall not subtract from it. You know, doing this Day of Atonement every year, I mean, why don't we just go to every two years, you know? I mean, is is it really going to make much of a difference? We'll just sacrifice two animals every two years to kind of cover the year that God will be good with that. Does it really matter how many times we wave the grain offering? I mean, come on, God's not that big of a stickler, is he? This view is oftentimes called the normative principle of worship. Sometimes it's been referred to as the uh, the Lutheran principle of worship. The theological term, though, is the normative principle of worship, but it's referred to as the Lutheran principle of worship sometimes because during the Protestant Reformation, when, when people are leaving the Roman Catholic Church or being kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church or driven out of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, the question is, how do we worship? If we're not going to worship in that way, then how do we worship? And Luther, and so that question tended to take the, the reformers, in one of two directions when it comes to worship, one of two directions. And one was the normative principle of worship, which Luther ascribed. Luther said, number one, there's two principles we need to follow. Number one, we must do in worship what God commands. That's clear. God commands that certain things be done in worship. We need to sing in worship. We need to pray in worship. We need to Uh, proclaim. We need to read and proclaim the Word of God in worship. These things must be done. And number two, we may do in worship what does not violate the clear teachings of Scripture. There's the difference. Luther argued we must do what God commands and we may do what Scripture does not explicitly forbid. Contrary to that view is what came to be known as the regulative principle of worship, which is the view that was followed by the likes of John Calvin and John Knox, who argued that we must do, and we may only do, we must do, and we may only do that which is prescribed by Scripture. We do not have the freedom to add to it or to subtract from it. We don't have the freedom to come up with our own unique way of worshiping God. Hence, what we do in worship must be regulated by God's word. That's where the name comes from, the regulative principle. What we do here in this place must be regulated by God's Word, not by what other churches are doing, not by what other religions are doing, not by what the latest uh, craze is that is going on in evangelicalism. Worship must be regulated by God's Word. This is actually what Paul is going to address in the remainder of this chapter. In chapter 14, he's going to address this. What we'll see is that God or is that Paul is going to regulate first off how prophecy and tongues are to be used in worship. He's going to regulate them. Secondly, we'll look at this next week. He's going to regulate the extent to which women may participate in corporate worship. And then finally, overall what worship should look like according to God's word. And so he says in verse 26, then, of our text. He says in verse 26, what then, brothers? In other words, what does all this mean for corporate worship? What then, brothers? Because remember, ever since the beginning of chapter 11, And if you remember, I said this way back then when we began chapter 11, that chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 all have to do with corporate worship. They all have to do with what we can and cannot do or what we should and should not do in corporate worship. He began essentially by talking about women's proper apparel in corporate worship. He then goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper and how that is to be done in uh, corporate worship. And then he'll go in and talk about the various gifts that the Holy Spirit gives and how those are to be used in corporate worship, the importance of love in corporate worship. And then in 14, he has spent a great deal of time talking about how tongues and prophecy are to be used in corporate worship. And so when he gets to verse 26, it's okay, what then brothers, what does this all mean, right? Let's boil it all down. What does this mean for us in corporate worship? What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. When we come together, each one has something to share or they have something that they want to share. One person may have a hymn that they may have written at home and they want to share them because that's how they that's how they got new worship songs back then, right? They didn't, uh, they didn't just pick up new worship songs from CCLI or listening to their Getty station on Pandora. Uh, someone wrote these at home, and then they would come to church and say, hey, I've got a song. I'd like to share it. I'm hoping it'll be a blessing to all of you. Some may have had a lesson that had been prepared at home. Um, came to church, want to share what they have discovered from God's Word, or maybe perusing over the letter that had been written to them by the Apostle Paul, and wanted to share their knowledge with the rest of the church. But Paul's point is this, all of that is fine, but whatever you do, it must be done to edify and build up the church. He keeps driving that point home over and over and over again It's not about you. It's about edifying the church. It's not about advancing your own ministry agenda. It's not about advancing your career. It's not about impressing others. It's not about, it's certainly not about earning favor with God. Oftentimes people get involved in ministry because of legalistic reasons. I need to do more to earn God's blessing, to earn God's favor, all the while not realizing that they are engaging in a very subtle form of legalism. Everything we do should be for God's glory and to edify the saints, which means that as much as possible, we try to direct people's attention away from us and on to Christ. Thus, everything must be done for building up. The question is, how so? Right? What what does that look like? I mean, we get what Paul is saying. Everything must be done for building up. But what exactly does that look like, Paul? And so now Paul is going to give specific regulations in two areas in other words he's going to answer his own question how so this is how so let me explain to you how so and he's going to give principles for regulating two areas of ministry and the first is how speaking in tongues is to be carried out in corporate worship paul is going to give four regulating principles regarding the speaking of tongues in church. And the first regulating principle is this, no more than three may speak in tongues. He actually limits the number, no more than three. He says in verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only, only two or at most three, at most three. Paul says. In other words, if there are four or five who desire to speak in tongues that morning, Paul says, no, you got to wait. Come back next week, but not today. You know, this is evidence that, again, tongues was not, is not an ecstatic language, right? Contrary to what many of our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ believe, right? Tongues, the Holy Spirit doesn't just take over somebody and they just start speaking. I can't help it. This is the Holy Spirit. I caught up in the Holy Spirit. I got to just speaking in tongues. Paul said, no, they can control it. They can take turns because only two or three at most should speak in tongues. But why does Paul limit the number of those who may speak in tongues because this could easily... Dominate the entire church. It was clearly a significant issue in the church in Corinth. He spends far more time dealing with the gift of tongues than any other gifts. The second most is prophecy, but tongues is, is the one that he spends the most amount of time on. It is, it is the one, even today, in many charismatic churches that you see most of them have. Most of them want to use because it's a very obvious kind of gift. It's very public. And Paul realizes that this could easily dominate the entire worship service. Even if they took turns one after the other, if everybody does it, you're going to be there for hours with people only speaking in tongues. But Paul understands that this should not be the central focus of worship. And so he says it needs to be limited. Well, what is to be the central focus of worship? Well, not the music either. Many churches think that. We want 45 minutes of singing in a 10-minute message because we want to we feel good, and music makes me feel good. Paul says to the preaching pastor, In Ephesus, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says to him, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Devote yourself to the public reading, the public exhortation, and the public teaching of God's Word. And in case Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, didn't get it the first time, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he writes this even stronger language. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Timothy. That's what they need more than anything. It's not music. It's not prophecy. It's not tongues. It's not even the Lord's Supper. Give them the Word of God. To the preaching pastor of the church, the first church in Crete. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this to him, As for you, Titus, the preaching pastor in the church in Crete, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Because as Paul says, all of God's word, all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly, completely equipped. What we need above all else is to know God. And thus, Paul believed that the gift of tongues needed to be limited in corporate worship. The centrality of the preached word is to be preeminent. Because, as Matthew 4, 4 tells us, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's where real life comes from. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the words or the Word that proceeds from God. Jesus is the Word of God, who proceeds from God the Father. And in the act of faithful expository preaching, Christ the Word is fed to God's people. In the act of faithful expository preaching... When the minister speaks, it is God speaking. If he is being faithful to the word of God. Like baby birds, church members should come to church hungry for God's word and be fed God's word by the minister. That is the role of faithful preaching. The second regulating principle that Paul gives regarding tongues is this. Of those those two or three, they should take turns. They should take turns. He says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, each in turn. They should not be stepping on one another. They should not be speaking over one another. Again, more evidence that the gift of tongues is not an ecstatic language. It is not beyond the control of those who may possess that gift. Because even if there are interpreters, if you have three people talking at the same time, nobody's going to benefit from that. The third regulating principle is that there must be an interpreter. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Let someone interpret. Of course, Paul has already explained in great detail in verses 1 all the way to verse 25, right? We spent several weeks in that passage, why it is important to have an interpreter. Because without an interpreter, nobody is going to benefit, not even the speaker, because he doesn't even know what he's saying. The only way he may possibly benefit in a sinful way is by people being impressed at, oh, he's got the gift of tongues. He's so spiritual, even though we have no idea what he's saying. And thus, the fourth regulating principle, Paul says, if there is no interpreter, keep Silent, no exception. Be silent, he says. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So here's the summary. Four regulating principles for the gift of tongues. Number one, no more than three. Number two, each in turn, Number three, there must be an interpreter. And number four, if there is no interpreter, then there is no speaking in tongues. Very simple. As much as I love our fellow brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement, I sometimes wonder, are they reading the same Bible that I'm reading? In verses 29 to 32, Paul will then offer three regulating principles regarding prophecy, regarding the gift of prophecy. Number one, no more than three. He limits prophecy as well. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Two or three. Not as many as they want. Not four or five or six or seven. As with tongues, the same applies to New Testament prophets and for the same reason. For the same reason. That is, New Testament prophets did not and do not speak on behalf of God. This is, again, evidence, biblical evidence, that number one, the gift of prophecy is not ecstatic. And number two, New Testament prophets do not replace the Old Testament prophets. New Testament prophets do not speak authoritatively on behalf of God. They do not speak, thus saith the Lord. Both then in the New Testament church and even today, if you want to hear from God, if you want to know what God wants for you to understand, this is where you get it. This is where you get it. Not from anyone who may Claim to have the gift of New Testament prophecy or the gift of tongues. The second regulating principle regarding prophecy is that the church must weigh what the prophets say. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Let the others weigh it. Is this valid? Is this true? The others, I think, is a reference to the other members of the church, not the other prophets, the other members of the church. Elsewhere, Paul encourages the church. For example, in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul encourages the church not to quench the spirit. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. What is... What does he mean by that? He then says, immediately following verse 19, do not despise prophecies. So I do think that what Paul means when he says don't quench the Spirit is don't despise prophecies. If someone has that gift legitimately, be willing to allow them to use it. But then notice what he says immediately after that. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything hold fast what is good test everything John will say the same thing in 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 similar wording John says in 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 beloved do not believe every spirit don't believe everybody who says i have the gift of prophecy don't believe everybody who says i have a word of knowledge from god do not believe every spirit Do not believe everybody who says, I've got a degree from a seminary. I've been ordained as a minister. I know the Bible. I've been certified and whatever else. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into The world. We are to test the spirits. Test those who profess to be spiritual, those who profess to have a spiritual gift. The gift of teaching is a spiritual gift. How do we test the spirits? Test the spirits by what standard? By what measure? By God's Word. Is this what the Bible says? Give me proof. Show me where you're getting this from. Why should I believe you? Doesn't matter what experience you may have had. Doesn't matter what preacher you've gotten this from or what seminary you graduated from. Give me God's Word. Show it to me in God's Word. For long, for many years, I have told people never be afraid to ask as many questions as you want about God's Word. You can fire as many questions as you want at the Word of God because the Bible can handle it. The third regulating principle that Paul offers is that each must prophesy in turn. Verses thirty. To thirty-two. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Again, New Testament prophets can and should control their utterances. The idea of someone standing in church and just spouting off some prophecy or speaking in tongues quite honestly, my friends, is unbiblical, it is distracting, it is unedifying, and it is sinful. And here's why all of this matters and why Paul regulates how these things ought to be done in church. Verse 33, 4. Here's the reason. Because... God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He's a God of peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The Word of God says this For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. John chapter 14, verse 27. That very same promised son from Isaiah says this in John 14:27 Peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid God is the God of peace Jesus is the God of peace who brings peace and order into our lives because he is the God of peace and order, who delivers us when we are saved from our chaotic lives, right? From lives of chaos. When God saves us, he saves us from the chaos of living in a sinful world of living according to our sinful desires. And you know what I mean, some of you do. When I say that the deeper you were involved in a sinful lifestyle, the greater the chaos was that God delivered you from and brought peace and order into your life. Hence, since God is a God of order who brings peace, then the church, which is the body of Christ, is to be a place of peace and order. And the church comes together for corporate worship. The body of Christ we ought to worship in a manner which reflects the God we worship. A God of peace and a God of order. So also, God is a holy God who is to be feared and revered. Thus, corporate worship should also be marked by reverence. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. The authoritative word of God says this Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. In other words, be afraid. Be very afraid. That's in the New Testament. Worship God with reverence and awe and fear and give him acceptable worship. Why? Because the God you worship is a God who is a consuming fire. It's an implied threat in the New Testament. Don't you dare approach God to worship Him in any way that you desire or any way that you see fit. Because remember, the God that you approach in corporate worship is a consuming fire. When the body of Christ comes together for corporate worship, we are to be a reflection of, of the God we worship, order, peace, and reverence. This is the main reason we worship the way that we do. This is what we strive for in corporate worship, and we do that which is prescribed in Scripture. And thus, worshiping God in a way that reflects The God we worship is best accomplished by allowing Scripture alone to regulate how we worship and approach God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would impress these words upon our hearts and upon our mind from the Apostle Paul, from the book of Hebrews, from Deuteronomy chapter 12, 1 John chapter 4. Lord God, we pray that we would see your word for what it really is, the actual, authoritative, infallible, trustworthy word of God. And that we would desire to worship you in a manner that has been prescribed by you through your word, that we might render to you acceptable worship. We pray that our worship would be a reflection of the God who saved us, redeemed us, loved us, sent his Son to die on the cross for our sins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.